also did did in this world did dinosaurs not evolve into birds or did only right. some of them evolve into birds like the raptors seem to have feathers which mm-hmm. is which is accurate according to modern paleontology but but there also are birds there's also domesticated chickens that's yeah yeah and yeah why and why why just chickens what do they what do they need the chickens for right like we never see them like get any eggs we never see them eat the chickens yeah. and and they're you know they're herbivores so like they wouldn't eat the chickens anyways i never so, thought of that yeah yeah and like as far as we know there's not like a market they sell anything to so it's not like they're trying to do it for money so it's it, it's not really clear why they have chickens besides just to give arlo a hard time i guess yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it adds that whole like quaint you know life on the farm kind of setting and, mm. and all that are are chickens involved at all in I don't know in in like the propagation of of crops or like do they help in any way or are they just kind of part of farm life Welcome to Talk Agnomy, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brandon Black, and today's episode is one that I'm really excited about because it's about a topic I've been trying to get an episode on out for quite a while. Uh, it's uh, going to be another supporting evidence episode that goes along with our mini series, uh, our, our theory mini series that we've been doing here for a little while now. And to help me with this episode, I have a very special guest. So today's episode is all about the good dinosaur, and this guy runs a podcast that's named after dinosaurs. So I think that he'll be a, a great addition to uh, to our conversation here. So here I have Lou uh, Lou Gaudi uh, Lou Gaudio. Excuse me, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, but uh, this is a, this is our uh, our comic uh, comic writer here that that has all kinds of knowledge on dinosaurs and stuff. And he watched the movie and reached out to me and said that it was uh, a great uh, conversation that he wanted to have with me. So I hope that, uh, hope we have some fun here. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brandon. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So before we get started, would you like to kind of let people know a little bit about who you are and where they can find you and all that kind of fun stuff? Totally. So I'm thrilled that we're going to be talking about this movie because I host a podcast called Robots versus Dinosaurs. And it's uh, largely a like I, I describe it as a comedy and philosophy movie podcast. Uh, the the basic premise is I always let my guests pick the movie, and um, the the only requirement I have is that it has to feature a robot or a dinosaur or both in it. And uh, they always pick good movies. And the reason I let the guests pick is that way, like I always know that we're gonna have a good like fun conversation about it. We're not gonna trash the movie. We're not gonna pick it apart or like anything like that. We're gonna talk about what we loved about it. Um, so I'm very excited to talk about this because this is a movie that none of my guests have ever have ever picked before. And I think it is a very underrated Pixar movie. Awesome. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with that. And, you know, uh, I'm just going to you know start it off right now. I watched this movie for the first time back in 2015 when it came out, and I really wasn't a fan at first. But after rewatching it, I was like, you know what? This movie's a lot better than I remember it being. Hmm. It's very charming. It's got a lot of beautiful, beautiful visuals mm. and just absolutely gorgeous landscapes. And it's just amazing what they what they were able to do with animation in 2015. And mm. uh, and I, I just think it's I think it's very charming. I think it's very fun. And I'm excited to to get into it. I'm also very excited to talk about the agriculture aspects of it because uh, that's a very interesting angle. And uh, so I'm excited to see where that goes. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I right along, you know, side with you when, when I was watching my roommate watched it with me, we were both just like, wow, this movie was made in 2015 and it looks this good. I mean, it looks better than some of the movies we have today. Like, mm-hmm. and, and to, you know, to be fair, and we'll get into this a little bit later, I didn't give it enough credit because the story reminded me a little bit too much of Lion King, but you know, that's, that's a, another point that we can go on. Um, but after rewatching, I realized the similarities weren't quite as there as I thought they were. And this movie does have a lot of, you know, uniqueness and charm to it. Kind of like you were mentioning. So I'm, I'm just as excited to hop into it. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good description of it. It's like prehistoric Lion King. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the, I don't have we, I'm not sure if, we, if we've been mentioned by name yet, but the movie we're talking about is the good dinosaur. So we decided to have a conversation today about the good dinosaur and its relationship with agriculture and, and not just that, but you know, in the grand scheme of this, of this mini series we're doing here, I'm trying to prove the point that the good dinosaur is, is an integral element in, in that conversation we've been having about agriculture being a foundational element of, of societies, you know, in order for society to thrive, agriculture has to be part of it. And I think the good dinosaur does a good, a good job of kind of demonstrating that point because they have a society that's entirely run by non-human creatures and they still have agriculture as part of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Does that, does agriculture uh, just include, is it just things that grow from the ground or does it include like the livestock when the T-Rexes are not to jump ahead, but like, does that included in agriculture? Absolutely. So agriculture is generally kind of defined as utilization of natural resources to produce commercial products. So it could be uh, raising, you know, raising crops, taking care of animals and other livestock, uh, even like, like harvesting wood from trees, you know, like lumber and, and mining, even those like fishing, all that's considered agriculture. Very cool. Yeah, we see all of that in the good dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I think just kind of jumping into it, let's um, let's kind of you know set the scene for for the movie. Um, so the movie starts off. You know, the reason that that it's about dinosaurs in the first place is because the the famous meteor that took out many of our our well known reptilian friends completely misses Earth. I mean, it's kind of a funny scene in the beginning. You know, all these dinosaurs are eating, and they look up and just see the meteor fly over Earth, and they're just like, huh, okay, and they just go back to eating, and. <laughs> from there, society just kind of evolves into into its own without the subtraction of the dinosaurs. And that really changes how, you know, how the dynamic of the world works, which I thought was really interesting. I don't know if you had anything to add to that. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love I love the what if setup Mm -hmm. of the movie that, you know, what if what if uh, dinosaurs survived the extinction event that wiped them out? What would their society look like? And the, the fact that it contrasts humans that have evolved seemingly less than the dinosaurs mm-hmm. themselves is very, very fascinating. Um, not to go off on a, on a tangent, but just real quick, have you seen Peter Jackson's King Kong? I have not actually. It is, uh, there are dinosaurs in that movie. And the, the reason for that is that basically um, it speculates that there's this island where King Kong lives, Skull Island, where uh, the speculation is like, it's one place on the planet where dinosaurs, um, it, they like just on this island survived the extinction event. Mm. And so they, they're they not traditional dinosaurs. They're like, instead of T-Rexes, they're V-Rexes and they're evolved slightly different. They have three fingers instead of two. Hmm. There's all kinds of examples like that. And so this, this I love because it's a whole entire movie mm-hmm. on that what if question and that kind of speculation. Interesting. And see, you know, it's, it's interesting because I actually had a point written down in my notes as well about that, about how there are some species that continued to evolve and some species that did not. You know, obviously we see um, the T-Rexes that you mentioned, we see uh, pterodactyls, we see 
uh, brachiosauruses, you know, all these different dinosaurs that they remain mainly the same com compared to what we what we understood them to be like, you know, back when they're still alive. And there are some species that continue to evolve naturally. We see birds that are tiny, you know, compared to birds like, you know, like the birds we have now. We see some bugs that are huge and some bugs that are small. We see fireflies versus you know, the, the massive bee, you know, like, yeah. I thought that the, you know, the, the distinction in evolution was really interesting, especially in like, like you mentioned, even the humans don't seem as far along as they should have been for, you know, for the, the comparison to the dinosaurs. The bugs was a particular thing that I wrote down because at first I was like, these bugs honestly seem kind of small mm -hmm. considering what I know about prehistoric times <laughs> and how huge bugs were. Uh, and then later on, there's a scene where Spock catches a huge bug. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. And I literally <laughs> crossed out my note that these bugs are too small. I crossed that note out and I was like, oh, okay, the movie accounts for both. So that's right. really cool. Yeah. No, and I think it's interesting, you know, like seeing the difference in evolution between the species is a huge part of it. And then we start to see the difference in evolution between the subcultures. So like, you know, you start to see um, like somewhat of a development of society that's kind of there, but it's also kind of not like there's not cities or anything, but there are obviously farms. There's people, you know, there are, there's dinosaurs that own uh, livestock. There are dinosaurs that are, you know, they're bandits of sorts, you know, they're, they're technically scavengers, but they're, you know, they're, they're also, they have some sort of role in, in the entire society. Um, so it's not like a formal society, like, you know, what we know, but it's, it is somewhat more of like a Western kind of every man for himself type society. That's not quite like hunters and gatherers, but it's not quite like civilized as much as we would expect it to be. It's a good point. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't think about like what, what, the fact that they all kind of speak the same language and it's interesting that humans don't right. um that the like when we when we encounter these bad guys like like uh steve zahn as the as the pterodactyl thunderclap i think is his name and and um and his gang and then later on the raptors that are that are uh what do they call them rustlers the cattle rustlers mm -hmm. that are like going after the livestock it's interesting that they they all speak the same language so it's almost like you, it's you. They are scavengers. They do have a role in the ecosystem, but it's you can because they're talking because they're so intelligent. These are criminals. These are right. that, like they're <laughs> choosing to be bad. If you think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you know you, you start to see that at first, like when we first meet Thunderclap and his little gang. You know he comes across as like a, oh you know this guy's trying to help people. He's trying to find you know innocents that have been you know, have been hurt by the storm. And then he finds one and immediately eats it, you know, and kind of throws away any trust we have for any character in the, sh in the, in the movie. Um, and so it's like, you know, when he does that, you start to realize like, oh, like, yeah, they, you know, they were given off this front of being a rescue team, but they're also, you know, they're, they're also like villains they are also like, you know, like, uh, like uh, bandits of some sort or like um, not bandits necessarily, but you know, like they're, they're, um, they're criminals, like you mentioned. But at the same time, they keep the realism of these are still animals. You know, these these are still like like mm. living creatures. They're they're still like um they're still scavengers that need to eat to live. You know, and we don't like we almost get detached from the idea that you know these dinosaurs are still like not human. You know, they still have to do things almost you know in in an animalistic way. They just have a bit more you know because they can talk because they have some level of, of conscious thought. They have a bit more realism to their personality than than you know we would think of them as normal dinosaurs would. That's true, but it's it's it is interesting, and I always think about this in in movies when whenever they depict animals, especially talking animals, that there's that you know the the thunderclap and his group the, the the storm provides, and they they pretend to be doing search and rescue, but then they like they eat that 
cute thing with the, with a furry face mm-hmm. and we're kind of mortified by that but when spot finds a bug and rips its head off <laughs> that's just played for comedy straight right. up comedy and it's like i get why but why do we you know we have more sympathy for things that are furry mammalian have a face but something that is just as important to the ecosystem like a giant bug like a giant insect it's like it's just you know it's comedic when it gets his head ripped off <laughs> right yeah and, and going back to the you know to the evolution thing we're talking about too it's funny how like the mammals in this movie are very not what i expect the mammals to be like for having you know co-evolved with dinosaurs you know like we see like this little you know the, the thing that the thunderclap eats like a little like fox almost you know and we see mm. like you know small furry animals like squirrels and gophers and that sort of thing throughout the movie and obviously we have humans um and then we see like the bison, you know, that they're like kind of like the longhorns of, of you know their of their generation. Um, it, it's interesting because you know I I kind of and you know maybe maybe I'm wrong about this because I'm I'm a bit rusty on my prehistoric knowledge, but I didn't expect mammals to be that small, you know, during this era or what, what this era should be. Yeah, because I think the, the I guess the theory um, with paleontology is that the only reason mammals survived this, the extinction event is because it was the smallest ones that were able to hide in holes and, mm-hmm. and forage and um, and sort of ride out the, the ice age right. uh, that followed. But yeah, it's it's funny that 65 million later, 65 million years later in this speculative what if world, they're still that small. You know, they, they haven't really, but I guess it's because they're not, they're not the dominant, they're not the most intelligent species and therefore the most dominant. That would make sense. I can I can see that being true because even like the humans are smaller than than humans should be, and that that could be just because they weren't mm. the dominant ones. They had no reason to get bigger, you know. And their speech doesn't seem to be as complex as the right. dinosaurs. I might be I might just be making assumptions about them because we don't get to see them as much. But it really does seem like they're more like dogs, yes, than like a wolf pack than than uh, than an intelligent group of creatures. And and it's fa- the most fascinating aspect of it to me is that the T Rexes. Are carnivores, but they don't eat the herbivore dinosaurs, or they don't seem interested in eating the herbivore dinosaurs like the raptors do or like the pterodactyls do. They I have no no doubts that they're eating the livestock that they're herding, but it seems like that's like, I don't know, is the word is humane an appropriate word? Like they're <laughs> they're doing that humane, they're they're sourcing their food humanely and not going after the other intelligent dinosaur beings. Right. There definitely seems to be some kind of distinction between the dinosaurs of, okay, if you can talk, then you're a person. I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat you. And, you know, and, but like you said, it seems to only be with the more morally decent dinosaurs, like the T-Rexes, whereas, you know, like the scavengers, they'll eat whatever they can find, or like the, Mm -hmm. the raptors would go after, you know, they would eat whatever they could find. Like there seems to be, and like, even like the T-Rexes had no interest in eating Spot, you know, because they didn't see him as, as a livestock animal. They saw him as, like you said, a dog, you know, I actually wrote that down too, that, you know, Spot obviously behaves very much like a dog throughout the movie. And like the way that he howls to his, to his other, you know, to his family very much shows a pack mentality that, which I also thought was interesting because most animals don't develop families. Like they, they generally have like herds or packs that they will, will generally like they'll kind of reside in, but they won't have specific like nuclear families spot has a nuclear family and you know in and early humans you know had had somewhat of that Mm. dynamic figured out but it was interesting to me that we see dinosaurs throughout the the movie with families because we assumed like okay well they're civilized they're intelligent they figured out families are the way to go 
these things that we consider not, you know, civilized, these, you know, these, these cavemen, they figured out how to have a family and to maintain it. You know, they just happened to lose one of their kids by accident with, you know, they're, they're, you know, he's, he's crazy. Of course they're going to lose him. But like, I thought that was really interesting that they didn't really like, it seems like all of the bad guys did not have families, you know, like the, like the, the scavengers, like they had like their group, but they weren't like a family. They were kind of just like three dudes or I guess two, you know, two dudes and, and a girl that, that kind of just hunt together. And the mm. Raptors, like it's kind of assumed that they're a family, but it's never really explicitly said like, you know, if they're actually related, if they kind of hang out together. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know why I thought that was kind of interesting too. Yeah, those raptors are definitely like to feed into your Lion King analogy. They're very much uh, that like the hyenas. From, yes, from Lion King. Is is um is that sort of like family structure or or staying together as a family a, a unique thing to to mammals like in in the real world? Because you definitely like I def- I've heard of uh, elephants mm-hmm. and uh, orcas even um, having very distinct uh quirks or or seemingly like personality traits where it seems like they mourn their dead or they mm-hmm. they have like a very strong tie to um to to keeping their family unit together is that something that's unique to mammals i would say in in my experience and you know like like you have your research done in dinosaurs. I have mine mostly done in mammals. So I have, you know, a a decent amount of of experience I would like to say in in mammals. And I, in my experience, that does seem to be the case. Like if you think about Mm it, most reptiles don't hang out together. You know, if a lizard, you know, if a lizard's hanging out with another lizard, usually it's because he's going to eat him or he just hasn't decided what to do with him yet, where they just happen to be eating in the same spot. Um, Mm. You know, turtles are notorious for leaving their eggs on a beach and then just leaving, you know, reptiles and like, especially like, you know, they're like, you have like schools of fish that will occasionally stick together, but you also have some fish that reside by themselves. You know, it depends on the species of the fish. Um, birds are kind of like that too. A lot of birds, once they leave the nest, they don't go back to their nest or, or go back to their family. They're just on their own. And hmm. I think the reason why is because mammals have created this dependency because you have to nurse your young until they're old enough to be able to, to fend for themselves. So they've created a almost like an evolutionary dependency on having some kind of family structure. And like you mentioned, you know, they, they mourn their, they, you know, they mourn their dead and part of it, you know, like there's, there's an emotional aspect of it too. Like, you know, these, these animals are, they're spending a lot of time together. They're nursing, they're staying, you know, they're staying close together for warmth. Um, that releases a lot of, you know, hormones that, that naturally cause them to bond more easily. But not only that, you know, if, if they've learned that, being in packs helps them survive better of course they're going to mourn their dead they have one less person to defend them they have one less person to take care of now and so you know it's it's like a it's almost like and, and i think humans are part of this group too we we've you know as as mammals we have evolved to discover that there's power in numbers and we've mm. we've kind of evolved in in a way that's you know because like i would like to say that you know that mammals figured it out but mammals aren't the longest living species on earth but they're also one of the, I would say probably one of the most hunted. Well, insects are hunted quite a bit, but you know, you, you see a lot of animals being, or a lot of mammals being used for food or for fur or for, you know, like, like, because mammals produce a lot of stuff, you know, they produce fur, they produce milk, they produce food, they produce like a ton of different, you know, like stuff inside their bodies. A lot of things want to eat mammals. And so I think that they developed this herd mentality or this family dynamic as a, as a defense mechanism and it ended up benefiting them in the long run. And so all mammals just kind of figured out that's what we need to be doing. You know, we can't abandon our young or else they're going to die pretty much. And there are some that do, I mean, like bears don't really have herds or anything. Um, but most mammals are at least most, most non-predatory mammals are 
pack animals and even a lot of predatory animals are pack animals like lions and and you know and uh, wolves and, and that sort of thing it's really interesting i wonder if it has something to do with like the gestation and the fact that you're literally attached mm -hmm. and and up until the, the the point of the actual live birth right I, I would say that that's definitely a big part of it i think the nursing is a big part of it and then i think that because that you know that natural progression happened over time mammals just kind of realized hey we should probably just stick together you know like like i've been holding on to you for nine months you've been nursing on me for four months i might as well just keep you like that's just kind of as you know as as simple as that sounds that's probably kind of how it started to develop because i don't know very many mammals that naturally get away from their young because they can't you know like mm -hmm. most mammals if you leave them behind they will die like if you do not feed them at a young age they will die because they need milk you know it's the only way they can get nutrients for their body so i don't know it's 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 a really like you know how that kind of you know how that structure of, of their of their you know societies formed is, is still kind of a mystery but that's kind of the best speculation that anyone's been able to come up with so far it's fascinating Mm -hmm. So, and that actually ties into a big point that I was going to, I was going to go into with, you know, with the movie that the, the family dynamic has tied into the dinosaurs. And we see that, you know, like straight off, you know, straight off the bat, as soon as the movie starts, we see, you know, this, this young couple who's starting their farm, they have three kids born and, and all of a sudden the kids are, are employees of the farm. That's like super common. Like if you, if you run a farm and you have kids, your kids are all, all of a sudden employed, you know, like that's just kind of how it goes. I thought that that was funny because like, you know, that kind of, you know, reinstates that, that family dynamic thing. And it kind of goes into the, so like a big thing that I was pointing out from this movie was, was the symbolism. Like there's a lot of like, you know, like real world, like correlations between like, you know, the ranchers and the cattle. That's, that's like real, you know, real life cowboys and like the, the, uh, the vultures and the raptors are kind of like bandits or, or, you know, like they're like the, the criminals that the cowboys have to shoot down all that kind of stuff. Like there's all kinds of connections there, but there's a lot of symbolism in like the very, very early scenes of the movie. And I, I found a lot of ties between agriculture and between like the early scenes of the movie that are deeper than just the fact that they actually have a field of, of corn that they're growing. And the corn, you know, the corn itself is even symbolic, I think. Uh, symbolic of what? So, and this, I'm, I'm fairly certain this is entirely unintentional. Um, but, you know, a lot of symbols are unintentional in, in, in works. Um, I think that the corn is a symbol of unity. So here's a, I, let's see, I'm trying to think. So ha have you heard of um, FFA? Yeah, yeah, uh, Future Farmers of America. Mm -hmm. Actually, I just didn't, I didn't even realize I'm wearing my shirt right now. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> so yeah, so in FFA, we have the FFA emblem. You can actually, you can see it on my shirt. Uh, it's, it's half of a corn cob and in the middle you have like the plow and the rising sun and the eagle and all that kind of stuff, which is all, you know, it's all symbolic of something. The corn is symbolic of unity and the reason why is because corn is the only crop that is grown in every single state of the United States. And oh, wow. yeah. So, so anywhere you go, corn's going to be grown somewhere. It may not be grown abundantly, but it's grown in every single state. So it's known as like the unit, you know, it's like the unity crop because corn is kind of the symbol of agriculture. If you think of agriculture, you think of corn. Um, and one of the first ever domesticated crops was corn. You know, one of the first crops we figured out how to crossbreed was corn. Like corn has been this, this integral part of agriculture's history for since the beginning of agriculture. Um, and when the movie started, I noticed they were growing corn. I was like, that's funny. Like it could be as simple as, okay, they're farmers. They're going to grow corn because corn is the easiest crop to grow. And it's the most universally well, well accepted crop for, you know, a farmer to grow. But I also thought that it could be a symbol of, you know, 
corn is such an integral crop to the creation of agriculture that it kind of ties all agriculture together. Like this agriculture is, is being founded in a world outside of our own, you know, in, in a timeline where dinosaurs didn't die out and they became the intelligent species of the world. And still corn is being grown like that. That shows that corn is the unifying crop across agriculture throughout history on any timeline. And so that was kind of it, like, like I said, that, that could be reading a, a bit deep into it, but that was kind of the, the first thing that came to mind for me when I saw it, I was like, corn, unity, cool. Like that was kind of, and, and plus their corn is small. And that's, that's a really important yeah. detail because corn has evolved a lot since we started growing it. Like, I don't know if you've seen the pictures of early corn before we started domesticating it, but it was like a stick. Like it was just like, it, there, there was barely any cobs on it. It wasn't super big. And as we started to crossbreed it and crossbreed it throughout like hundreds and hundreds of years, it got to where we have now. Their corn looks nothing like our corn. Can I ask you, is it, is it like when you get like, like baby corn Mm -hmm. uh, in, in like Chinese food and stuff like that? Is it, is it, is that what corn naturally looks like? Is it, is it meant to be in its baby stage? Kind of. It's actually, that corn's even bigger than, than the original corn was. It was like tiny. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can pull up a picture and, and send it to you, but yeah, it's, it's, it was so small that I I'm almost, I'm surprised that they were able to farm it at all. I don't know how we figured out that corn was a thing we needed to be farming, but like every civilization, like, you know, the native Americans had, had corn. Um, a lot of like the, like the early, you know, um, the early civilizations down in Mexico, like the Aztecs and the Mayans, they all farm corn. A lot of like early African and, and, you know, uh, European farms started with corn. Like, for some reason, we had this unanimous agreement that corn was the thing we should be growing. And mm-hmm. we we continue to crossbreed it. So like today, corn is pretty big. I mean, um, mm. like it's, you know, we look at corn, and we're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's just corn. Like, it, it looks like how it's always looked. But it's really not like it's it's grown so much like here, I'm, I'm sending you a picture of it right now. Um, just right. just to show you the evolution. I love this picture. It's, it's one of my favorite to, to send people. Um, just to show the evolution of how much it's it's grown because it's huge you know gosh (laughs) so and like if you look at you know if you look at that picture their corn's probably about halfway through it's like it's not super small but it's like it's still smaller than what we have today um it's probably i would say let's see one two three four five i'd say it's probably the sixth or seventh one across it's kind of in between those two um Hmm. And we like, you know, today people think that the corn is so big because, you know, we do all kinds of genetic modification to it. We've been crossbreeding corn for so many centuries now that it was bound to get to this point eventually. So the fact that they have corn that's further developed than the earliest stages of corn, but it's not as developed as our stage of corn combined with the technology we see them use. So they have like, you know, wooden and ceramic like pots that they use for watering. They use their heads for, you know, for, uh, for uh, tilling. They use actual stone based silos, which is funny i thought because we don't use silos anymore but they're like commonly associated with with storage of corn um Uh, like they use technology that's still kind of primitive but it's further along than we would expect them to be for not having opposable thumbs and i was gonna say that they don't have hands so like all they could do is stack rocks right right so i i I was i was always interesting like looking at their version of agriculture it's so much further along than we could have ever predicted it to be but it shows the evolution like way deeper than, than people give it credit for. Like, yes, they have technology, mm-hmm. but like their corn is evolving, which means they figured out how to crossbreed, which means they figured out how genetics work. Like that's, that's a really big deal, you know, for, for a society that we barely have any technology besides what we use on the farm. Well, how, how does, how does a crop get 
larger over time? Like what's the, what's the evolution of, or how, or I guess if it's deliberate, like how, how do we force that or how do we uh, guide it to be bigger if that's the right word? So we do a process called selective breeding. So, um, oh, like just like with dogs. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, we take the most ideal traits out of corn and we decide to breed that corn. So like mm-hmm. if we, you know, and the same thing that happens with natural selection, it's just, we do it faster. Um, so like natural selection will, will pick the strongest of, of the crop, obviously, right? Like the same thing with animals, um, you know, the, the strongest will survive and, and the, the weakest will die off, except for in the case of the dinosaurs, which the strongest died off and the weakest survived for some reason. But, um, with you know with with corn you know we pick the we pick the corn that's the biggest that's the juiciest that's the healthiest you know whatever like the one that tastes the best the one that's the you know that's going to give us the highest yield we decided to pick that one and we picked another one that was just like it or one that was producing about the same rate or whatever and we decided to crossbreed them or just you know we decided to 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 pollinate them together and then we just kept doing that over years and years and we stopped using the ones that were weaker and eventually the the crop decides to evolve on its own it's like oh well if they're just going to keep picking the guys that are getting bigger, then we'll just all get bigger. And eventually we kind of figured out how to use that to our advantage. And we do that with actually, before we even started doing it with dogs, we're doing it with livestock. We're doing it with other types of crops like wheat. Um, We're doing it with um, yeah, all kinds of like, you know, uh, different livestock, like a bison and stuff like like a lot of our current, like modern cattle probably never would have existed without us. And same thing with dogs. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure pugs were not meant to happen naturally. (laughs) Yeah. They just, yeah. Yeah. I think natural selection would have come for them if we didn't first. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they have so many health problems. You know, uh, something I just thought of, uh, (laughs) you're describing that that's kind of gross, but the part we didn't see was how they are able to get the seeds uh, in order to plant them. (laughs) Which, you know, if you've seen Jurassic Park, we get a little bit of... uh, you know, that is a huge pile of <laughs> yes. dinosaur poo. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I'm sure it's great fertilizer. So they probably just go mm-hmm. out to the field and boom, they've, they've already got their fertilizer for the day. Yep. So, but like, it's, you know, it's interesting to me that like they have chickens, you know, they, they have, mm-hmm. you know, they have livestock, they have domesticated animals. And like, how do they figure out what's good for domesticating and what's not? Also, did did in this world did dinosaurs not evolve into birds, or did only right. some of them evolve into birds? Like the raptors seem to have feathers, which mm-hmm. is which is accurate according to modern paleontology. But but there also are birds. There's also domesticated chickens. That's yeah, yeah, and yeah. Why and why why just chickens? What do they What do they need the chickens for? Right. Like we never see them like get any eggs we never see them eat the chickens yeah. and and they're you know they're herbivores so like they wouldn't eat the chickens anyways i never so, thought of that yeah yeah and like as far as we know there's not like a market they sell anything to so it's not like they're trying to do it for money so it's it, it's not really clear why they have chickens besides just to give arlo a hard time i guess yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it adds that whole like quaint you know life on the farm kind of setting and, mm-hmm. and all that are are chickens involved at all in I don't know, in, in like the propagation of, of crops or like, do they help in any way or are they just kind of part of farm life? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. Um, people do use chickens occasionally for, um, uh, organic pest control. So like they'll, they'll, uh, eat bugs and they'll get rid of like weeds and stuff, which those chickens are pretty big. So maybe they were there for getting rid of bugs that, that could be aggressive. Yes. Very aggressive too. Yes. (laughs) Um, so that could be a solution, I, I guess. Um, but they 
typically like, you know, the reason you use chickens over anything else is because, you know, they're, they're multi-purpose. They're one of the most docile of all the bird of all like domesticated birds um, or domesticated livestock birds, I should say. Um, but they produce, you know, eggs and meat and they get rid of bugs and they can get rid of weeds. Sometimes the problem is they might get rid of your crops in the process because they're not very gentle. Um, and mm. they do produce fertilizer. You know, you can use chicken poop as fertilizer. The problem is that it's super high in nitrogen. So if you're, if your field is like just barely off balance in any one nutrient, it could completely destroy your field. Mm. Um, so you have to be careful with that kind of stuff, but it, you know, it is, it is used. Um, they use it for, you know, they actually also use chicken poop for, for cattle feed for, you know, reasons. Huh. Um, so like the chickens do have a lot of purpose on the farm, but a big reason people take care of them is, you know, is, as you know, just general livestock animals is because they're very easy to take care of. You know, they're, they're very easy to maintain compared to most livestock animals. They live for a decent amount of time. They're not like as fragile as some other animals like sheep are like, you look at them wrong and they die. So it's like they're, you know, chickens are, while they're fragile they're pretty hardy at the same time like they can they can kind of survive quite a bit so they're just kind of fun you know backyard animals to have and most people had chickens because you know cheap and easy eggs and it gives the kids something that they can work on that's not too dangerous and and that's kind of we actually see that you know this is a big a big part of the movie for me is that they're perfectly simulating what the you know classic american farm you know lifestyle was like you know you have the youngest kid go and feed the chickens because that's all he's really capable of and even that he struggles with like we we see that in all kinds of you know movies and tv show depictions of of like farms like there's always like the the chickens seem to cause problems for one of the kids and like the other two kids are somewhat competent they can kind of help out on the farm there's like that one guy who doesn't want to go do the one chore that he has um so i just i thought it was kind of funny they 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 threw the chickens in there, I think, kind of more as like a comic relief moment because they didn't really pay off in the long run. It was more like the field that was like the more like the bigger focus of the, of the farm. But I just thought that was funny that they happened to include like, oh, yeah, everyone has chickens. So why, why shouldn't, you know, these non meat eating animals have chickens? That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. <laughs> so and, you know, to your point we saw birds that were like, you know, the size of the birds we have now flying past their heads and they have these chickens are still pretty big, you know, for, for a chicken. Um, but they're not raptors and, you know, they, they're still used as livestock and they can't talk. So like, I'm curious about how that, how that evolutionary branch happened in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we see Debbie, Debbie right. is one example. Uh, when yes. we see that, I think it's, I think it's a Styracosaurus hmm. uh, with all, of, you know, it looks like a tree and it has all of the like friend, animal friends, yes hanging out on Sorens, and one of them is Debbie, the very, very aggressive one that tries to take spot as its pet. Right. But yeah, that's like a small, um, like a sparrow. I get. Well, I don't know if it was a, I don't know what kind of bird that was. Like, I'm not good at identifying birds. <laughs> yeah, like, it was like sparrow-sized or, or like mm-hmm. cardinal-sized or, you know. Yeah, yeah no, really exactly. Yeah, and even like, you know, even Debbie had like a certain level of, of intellect because she could communicate with, you know, with the dinosaur and she could, you know, mm. she had some level of consciousness. She just wasn't as vocally and you know intelligent as arlo was you know and, and like we and we saw other birds throughout the movie that just kind of you know flew around without any care in the world and yet the chickens have you know no level of intellect they're just there for their you know for their sole purpose like they're aggressive but that's about their entire personality but they're not raptors they're not pterodactyls they're not debbie like they you know all the birds in the movie seem very very different to me for some weird reason it's just it's just like the bugs there's like every yes. size of them there's the tiny ones that uh to bring it back to jurassic park are the <laughs> ones that might have bit a dinosaur and gotten caught in the amber uh, and then there's the giant ones that spot 
Spot uses for food. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So, um, what was that? Okay, so I got got past the corn. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of that that covers a lot of my my notes on the opening. You know, the opening of the movie, like the whole like the foundation of the farm and that kind of thing. And the rest of the movie kind of bounces back and forth between you know the the themes of uh, like agriculture's foundation of society. A lot of it's more like a coming of age kind of kind of story for Arlo, but there are quite a few things throughout the movie that kind of still tie back to that idea of like, hey, none of this would have happened without farmers. Like you know, like this is still like, despite the lack of society, there's still somewhat of a society going, and that society is running off entirely off of agriculture because we don't see any jobs that don't that aren't you know that aren't revolving around an, uh, animals or, or crops yeah the 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 t-rexes are really interesting in that regard that their whole i wonder if they i wonder if they if they have have any sort of trade or barter system like if they raise their livestock to to use like i, I don't know like i wonder how much of the the longhorns they utilize i wonder if it's like just if they're just raising them for meat or if they're raising them to trade for other resources with other dinosaurs because they do seem to have like when when they interact with spot when they interact with arlo a peaceful non-predatory non-carnivore herbivore relationship yes no absolutely and i think that you know it's interesting you bring that up because they do mention that they know other people that, you know, they go to the watering hole that might be able to help Arlo. So they definitely, you know, they have some level of social Social network. Yeah. And so like that, that, that's a really interesting point. They, they bring that up. They, they very well could trade, you know, cause that's, that's a lot of livestock for just them to eat. Like there's no way they get through all of those, you know, they have to do some kind of trading or, you know, maybe like they sell them for, you know, for other types of, of, you know, food or livestock. Cause I can't imagine they're growing a whole lot. They have stubby arms, you know, they're, they're pretty much only mm. good for hurting things. So um, I'm not quite sure exactly. Like it seems like the ranching style was, was kind of specifically what they're meant for, but I'm not, I'm not sure what the advantage would be in them having a lot of livestock that they can't eat by themselves. That's true. And, and well, I mean, at some point, um, I guess it has to be sustainable. They have to, they have to keep a certain amount that continues breeding more. They, you know, they, they can't just eat all of them. They're smart enough to know they can't just eat all of them, which is what any, uh, almost in the, I guess in the wild, like any T-Rex or any, any predator will just kind of, they, they don't have, I don't, I don't know if they have, well, this might be an, this is a wild speculation <laughs> statement that I'm about to say, and, and, and you can please correct me if I'm, if I'm going too far with this, but I don't think most predators have a, have self-control when it comes to how much they eat. It's just sort of, they eat until they're not hungry anymore. Mm. And they don't really think about whether, whether they're hunting their prey to a point where it's not going to be sustainable anymore. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, I've heard that like, there's like a Fibonacci uh, sequence sort of like <laughs> equation that dictates that nature sort of naturally dictates in any ecosystem that, you know, there will only be so many predators and so many prey species in a certain environment um, because the numbers themselves fit into this golden ratio that sort of keeps that sustainable, but it's not the animals themselves being intelligent enough to think about that. Humans are pretty much the only ones that will that will plan ahead or will try right. to keep it sustainable. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think that there's there's a bit of truth to the idea that, you know, predatory animals are, are definitely, they're going to, you know, they're going to gorge themselves first before anything. 
Um, you do see a bit of differentiation between species in that though. Like, you know, there, there are lions that when they hunt, they split up, you know, they split up a zebra with their young and with, you know, some other, some of the other like pride mates. Um, but for the most part, predatory animals. Yeah. Like you said, they, they, you know, hoard it all for themselves and they usually have to fight over the, the remains. Um, and it's, you know, like you mentioned there, there's a proper ratio of predatory to non-predatory animals in, in an ecosystem for it to function effectively. And anytime we see that get out of balance, the ecosystem falls, you know, um, we actually, we see, we've seen the desertification of, you know, several regions just because, you know, there weren't enough predators, predators to take out everything that was eating all the grass, you know, and, you know, or, or overforest it, you know, or overforestation because of an, of an abundance of predators. So like, naturally a lot of a lot of the time ecosystems will regulate themselves but there are times that that doesn't happen and we see extremely negative side effects from an environmental point of view because of of you know over or an overabundance or an under you know under uh, presence of predatory you know animals to be able to regulate everything around there so are there examples of that happening without like human interference let's say or like in uh, outside factors beyond the predators or, or other animals in that ecosystem's control? Or, or are there examples of like where that just happens kind of naturally, where, where a, a, an ecosystem will, will just not be balanced? Um, I don't know if, does that question make any sense? No, it does. Um, and, and, you know, to your point, I don't know of any off the top of my head where that's happened naturally. I do know of quite a few where there have been um, you know, the reverse has happened, you know, where, where, where humans have inter, you know, intervened and that has caused upsetment. So like, you know, a lot of the time, like in, in this, it's actually ties into the farm situation, you know, coyotes or other predators will try to attack farm animals. You know, humans will click off, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll shoot off some of those coyotes or some of like the, you know, the wolves, you know, the foxes in the area. And all of a sudden the predator rate goes so low, you see an overabundance of, you know, mice and other small rodents and all of a sudden all their crops are getting destroyed because there's nothing to eat those guys. And, you know, like, so like in a lot of those over desertified areas there, you know, the, the prey animals there are endangered. So they will actually get rid of a lot of the predators in the area to try to protect the prey animals. And then they become overpopulated and destroy the, you know, destroy the area. And so it's like, you know, humans are trying to do their best to try to keep things regulated and they end up doing more damage than, than good. Um, either because they're trying to protect their own land or they're trying to protect the natural balance of things. And in, in the process, they're over, you know, they're overweighing one side and they're kind of hurting the, the ecosystem. If they just kind of left things alone and trusted that they were going to do things on their own, then we haven't seen a whole lot of evidence to suggest that naturally ecosystems just begin to degrade. They may change over time. You know, you might, you might see a difference in what predators are there or what prey animals are there, but like for the most part, the ecosystem remains mostly consistent if you kind of leave mm -hmm. it to its natural processes from what we've seen. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. I, um, I don't I used to live in Guam when I was in the Navy and, and there was um, a lot about a lot of, thought put into uh, the brown tree snake because mm. it, it's this invasive species that showed up uh, and they're that one thing that they that allowed them to sort of dominate the whole island is that they can climb up trees and so they would go into into bird nests and they almost completely obliterated the entire bird population on the island so the the government had to sort of step in the environmental protection had to step in and there are there's like miles and miles of fencing throughout Guam now where they're just traps for these brown tree snakes hmm. um, because they had to gain control of it. 
the end result, I, I was there at a time like much, much after they started implementing these th these strategies to control that and, and, and try to restore balance in the ecosystem. The end result of, or not the end result, but one result of it, one, one outcome of it is the birds that, that are there are so aggressive. They're the most aggressive birds I've ever seen. If, if you go jogging anywhere in Guam, if you're running past birds that are that are on like a, 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 a telephone pole or up in a tree or something, if you run past them, they will swoop down and just aggressively huh. attack your head, like peck wow. at you and stuff like that. And it's because they've had to sort of adapt. Like these are the only birds that survived. So they, they I guess, passed down those aggressive traits. Hmm. Um, Interesting. They're just seriously, they're a menace on the, I mean, good for them for knowing how to survive and like defend <laughs> themselves, but goodness, they are a menace. Wow. That's crazy. And, and yeah. you know, that, that is a good point. Invasive species tend to cause those kinds of reactions to happen. I mean, you see evolutions happen all the time, usually because something changed in the environment that wasn't there before. And it causes everyone to say, Oh, that's not how it's supposed to be. Let me change myself so I can adapt to this now. And all of a sudden you have, you know, new, you know, new variations of animals that we thought we knew how they behaved or how they looked. And all of a sudden now they have some new feature that is supposed to help them adapt to the new threat, even though it's not there anymore because we got rid of it. Mm. And, you know, to your point, that that's something that happens more frequently than it should. I mean, we've had, you know, we've had uh, invasive species happen. We've had, you know, invasive species that we've allowed to, you know, like we brought species over from one area to another and they've become invasive species and they've become, you know, more of a problem than they're worth. Uh, I think that happened with yeah. a mongoose invasion. I can't remember where it was now, um, but there was a mm. mongoose situation that happened with that because they had a really bad snake problem. So they brought in all these mong, you know, mongoose. I guess it'd be mongoose to take out the snakes, and they overpopulated the area. So now there's like nonstop. You know, you can just see mongoose. You know, you can see them among everywhere you go. There's a mongoose around the corner, and so yeah. it's one of those situations. It's like, yeah, you got the job done, but what do you do with a new problem? You know, like. It's the old lady that swallowed the fly. She swallowed the spider to catch the fly. She, right. She exactly. The bird yes. to catch the, the cat, catch the bird. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But um, to, you know, actually still on topic with that, it, it, you know, going back to the movie, we see a lot of, you know, not necessarily in, in that sense, but we see it, an evolution of, of sorts happen in Arlo himself. You know, he has, he has to adapt to his new environment. Um, you know, you, you see, there's actually a point that I wrote down, um, you know, like right when Arlo, right when Arlo first, uh, <laughs> this is actually a funny point that my roommate made. Um, cause I was talking about how I was the first time I saw the movie, I was a bit disappointed cause it was a bit more like Lion King than I, than I was, than I was hoping it was going to be, you know, like, cause his dad gets swept away and it's like that whole thing. Um, after that happened though. Arlo kind of stepped up and said, okay, like this is serious. I need to help out the family. Now I need to stop being so scared. My roommate made an inter interesting comment. He said that this is almost the reverse of Lion King. You know, in Lion King, Simba starts out super cocky. He's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to be king. I'm the, I'm the, you know, I'm, I'm the coolest cat around. And then his dad dies and he loses all confidence whatsoever and runs away. Arlo, yeah. you know, he's a coward. Actually, you know, he's scared of his own shadow. His dad dies and all of a sudden he picks up all the slack and he becomes the new confident one around the block. And he got so confident and so angry that he got himself lost in the process. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting, you know, dichotomy of their personalities, how they're basically reverse roles. That is a real, that's a very astute analysis of this. Yeah, yeah. To the point where when he comes back, when, when mama sees his silhouette, mm -hmm. she thinks it's, 
the yes. dad she thinks it's Earl, I think is his name. Or, or um, I think it's Hen- Henry. I think Henry. Henry. Yeah. Earl, I think, might be one of the two exes. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Um, but yeah, so like you know, and I wrote that. I wrote that down that his you know, the death of his dad really made him mature as a person and kind of pick up the slack because he didn't want to let the family farm die, and that happens way more often than than people tend to think. You know, a, a death in the family c- tends to cause everyone you know that's helping out on the farm really pick up the slack and realize, oh, we have a responsibility to you know to keep this going for you know for their sake. Um, and that's kind of a big, you know, I, th- I thought that was a really interesting theme. They really captured that, you know, that emotional moment in there. That is awesome. Yeah, man. I, I, I definitely saw the Lion King parallels when I first watched this, but now that you're, now that you're pointing them out, it's, I think maybe that might be an explanation for why people don't often cite this movie as like one of their favorite Pixar movies or like talk about it very much is because it's, objectively speaking not the most original story ever told <laughs> um and it borrows very heavily from the lion king i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing every no. story borrows from another but yeah. that is a that is a very cool contrast where it's almost mm-hmm. the inverse of the lion king that's cool that's a great read on this yeah and it definitely it, when he said that because he he just kind of said well it's funny because like he's kind of the opposite of simba he got more confident after his dad died not less i was like huh and mm-hmm. i kind of started started thinking about it more i was like He's actually right. That kind of changed my mind on this movie. It's actually really, you know, this is a really cool idea. And, you know, as you watch him, you know, when he, you know, when he falls into the river with, with spot and he gets kind of, you know, kind of lost and he's at, he has to try to figure out how to survive for himself and he gets his leg caught and all that. Um, you know, he, he starts to see kind of like, you start to see a panic in his eyes. You start to think like maybe, you know, he kind of thinks he's just going to die here. Um, but he doesn't quite give up immediately. Like, you know, like we would kind of think that he would, you know, he goes for the berries, he goes for the food, you know, um, he kind of does what he thinks his dad would do, you know, almost like he kind of, mm. he, he picks up the slack and says, you know what, I'm not going to let my family down. There's a wind, you know, the, the first snow is coming. My mom can't take this anymore. She can't afford to have me die too. And so he goes until he gets his leg caught. And then he's just like, you know what? fine i'm just gonna i'm just gonna give up for right now and then spot digs him out and he's he's okay that survivalist attitude you know that idea of like i can't give up right now because there's so much riding on this that's a big part of a lot of people's you know motivation in agriculture like you know people say all the time that agriculture is uh you know motivated by money and that's partially true it is a business at the end of the day but for so many centuries money was not the foundation of agriculture, you know, producing enough food to keep either yourself, you know, not starving or to produce enough, you know, revenue to keep your, you know, to keep your family fed as well as, as, as well as other families. That was a primary motivator of, of a lot of even, even early civilizations, you know, back when we were still hunting and gathering and we first started to kind of make the differentiation between agriculture and, and hunting, there were a lot of people who would hunt on the side just to kind of keep the farm going just because they, you know, it wasn't sustainable yet. Um, mm. that survivalist instinct is, is kind of, you know, dug deep into a lot of people who, who perform, you know, who, who practice agriculture because they have to kind of know how to work off the land, but also how to, how to benefit off of the environment around them that they are not cultivating. Yeah. And, and also like what, what stays Arlo's hand at first when he, when his father tells him he's got to kill this, this creature that's coming and stealing their crops. He has compassion. He sees that it's struggling and his compassion. He doesn't kill spot, but then later, once he has sort of an emotional tie to, he, he think he sees spot as the, the reason his father died. Mm-hmm. 
then he's like he seems totally ready and if he were capable if he were able to to catch spot or spot was trapped in that moment i think he would have been able to pull the trigger he would have been able to like he brought himself to that point where he would have been able to make the kill um that might have prevented it would have prevented the whole movie from happening but it might have prevented all the problems that that he faced right yeah and you know that that's a big part of his development is that you start to realize he's not confident like his dad wants him to be at that point he's just fueled with anger he's just like you Mm -hmm. ruined everything you know he's not being the mature one that realized actually he kind of ruined everything if he would have just sucked it up in the first place none of this would have happened but he doesn't want to admit that and you know throughout the movie you start to realize that he's you know he's he's developing all of the same skills that his dad had and he's you know kind of maturing and realizing oh it wasn't spot's fault he was just trying to feed himself because he's alone too you know i i i reacted very harshly you know i should have i should have listened to my dad and just done what i was told in the first place and we wouldn't have had this issue you know like you start to see this and i think this is a big part of, of agriculture you know the the ties to agriculture it makes too is that you have to go through extreme hardship to to grow um and that mm. ironically enough correlates directly to you know to the growing of, of crops you know we like i mentioned earlier corn itself has come a long way since we first started growing it we had to go through so many different failures we had to have so many you know farms not make it to figure out what works and what doesn't that it was kind of like and that you know that's that's kind of the you know that's kind of the trademark of of agriculture and of farming is that tomorrow a storm can come and end all of it you know there there's no certainty in, in what you're doing everything could crash tomorrow and you have nothing to do about it you just have to do your best to keep mm-hmm. it going while you still can that you know, that uncertainty, it hardens a person. You have to be ready for anything. You have to be ready to take any kind of hardship off the top, you know, as soon as it comes and be able to react to it or else you're going to, you're going to drown. And we see, you know, Arlo go through that exact same thing. He goes through hardships the entire movie and he could just lay over and die. I mean, he had several opportunities to just let himself, you know, you know just give up. And he didn't, yeah. he kind of rose to the challenge and said, you know what? No, this is not what my dad would do. This is not what I'm going to do. And he kind of, you know, figured out how to, how to be, you know, how to be the kind of person that he needed to be in the first place to kind of take care of everything. He also suffered multiple concussions. Yes. That it's like a miracle <laughs> he survived. That's, yes. Is the, the morality, morality is a very interesting thing when you think mm-hmm. about like morality in, in nature. Because mm-hmm. they're, they're, it's such a human concept, morality in general, like that, the fact that, that, if Arlo's dad had been the one to just, instead of trying to teach his son a lesson and let him kill Spot, if he had just done what needed to be done, their family, their farm would have continued on, their family life would have continued mm-hmm. on as normal. However, the family that Spot was from would have suffered from, I mean, they, they already lost Spot and didn't know what happened to him, but they, if they ever found out that he was killed by these brontosauruses, who knows? Right. Maybe that would have led to a war between them, they would have come back and tried to get revenge. But like, if you try to ascribe morality to it, when everything in this world is just doing what it needs to do, scratching at and clawing to survive, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to say one is good and one's bad. Right. I guess, except for like the pterodactyls, those are pretty clearly kind of bad. <laughs> yeah. Because but... they're using deception. I think that's right. the line. Yes, no, I I agree. I was, I was going to say like from, from a, you know, from a survivalist standpoint, they're doing what they need to do to survive, but they, you're right. They, they don't need to be lying about it. They could just go hunt and, and call it good. But yes, I, I agree for the most part throughout the movie. There's not exactly a clear moral line because like, you know, even when like, we, you know, 
when Arlo's first being taught how to, you know, take care of the critter, which I still think it's funny that even in this age where there's dinosaurs, critters are still their biggest issue in, in farming. Um, but even when Arlo's being taught how to deal with the critter, he struggles with it at first, but he's confident. You, know, you see him marching around the silo, all, all proud of himself. He's going to make his dad proud. He's going to kill the critter. And then he sees it looking at him. And he looks into its eyes and he realizes that it's a living thing too. That's just trying to, trying to make it. And he starts to realize that he has a lot of sympathy for it. You know, that that's a really big moral question you have to ask yourself. And like thinking about this too, Arlo's a kid, you know, he's not, he's not like his dad or he, you know, his dad's probably like in his, you know, well, if we were speaking in human years, he's probably like in his fifties or sixties, you know, Arlo's like probably 12, you know, in human years. Mm-hmm. Um, like he, he's like, he's a young kid and he's trying to figure out how to, how to make his way in the world he's never killed anything before, you know, he, he mm-hmm. barely feed the chickens, you know, like he, he sees this and all of a sudden it, it, qu- it makes him question everything that he believes in. And it leads to his dad dying. And he realizes just how big his choices are and how, you know, how impactful they can be. And that more than anything kind of makes him realize like, Oh, like this is not okay for me to just keep screwing around. I have to figure out what I believe in. And I need to, I need to get it like down. And we see that throughout the movie. He kind of, you know, he kind of hardens what he believes in. Like even when Spot was still annoying mm-hmm. him, he could have fed him to the pterodactyls and been over with it, but he didn't want to do that. You know, like when he, when, when, you know, when the T-Rexes were, were, you know, trying to turn him down and trying to, trying to basically say like, you know, we're not going to help you. Like you're, you're useless to us. And even like when, when Butch, you know, the dad tried to try to eat him, you know, he, he still was like, Hey, look, I can help you guys. Like I'm like, regular Arlo would have turned down to that. He would have gotten scared and ran away, but he, you know, he stood up and said, no, look, I am of value to you. If you do not want me fine, but I'm going to take my value with me. And like, that's, you know, Mm -hmm. that's a very big thing for, for him, you know, for a kid to be able to figure out. And that's, you know, it it goes back to your question about, about the, the question of morality. There's so many different moving pieces because it is a a mini society in, in a way that it's, not every choice is as simple as this is the right choice. This is the wrong choice. Everybody's impacted by every choice that's made in the movie. And that clearly shows because everything that happens at the beginning gets told in the end, like everything Mm -hmm. goes back and forth throughout the movie. You see things like, Oh, that happened in the beginning. Oh, that, you know, like every, you know, even like the pterodactyls, you know, they come back later, they capture him. And like the only reason that they even were able to capture spot is because Arlo decided to not let him meet his family. If he would have brought him mm-hmm. to his family the first time, they would, you know, Spot wouldn't have gotten captured. I think Arla knows that. Yeah, it's um, dare we say the circle of life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the connections. Um, <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. Um, there is one thing I want to touch on quite a bit that mm-hmm. gets repeated throughout the movie. It's you can you can even call it a motif if you'd like. Um, water is everywhere. And I don't know how much of a literary uh, a literary, literary an- analyst you are, but water is incredibly significant in symbolism. Um, water tends to be symbolic of life. It can be symbolic of death. Usually it's symbolic of rebirth, though. Um, and we see all mm-hmm. three of those things happen in the movie. You know, obviously, in the very beginning, water is a symbol of, well, actually, in the very, very beginning, it's a, it's a symbol of life. You know, we see his dad yep. spraying water on the field. That's actually their form of irrigation, which I thought was really funny um yeah we see the sister tricking the brother into doing her chore of watering the crops Mm -hmm. yeah so like that you know that whole thing that's you know water symbol of life it gives life to the crops and that you know that's the biggest tie throughout the movie is that water will take you back to you know it'll take you back home you know water is the symbol of life and the continuance of life you have you have to have water to survive and that's a 
if I, if I haven't heard a truer, you know, a truer statement about agriculture in my life, that's it. You know, agriculture relies heavily on water, no matter what it is. If it's animals, they got to drink. If it's crops, they got to drink too. You know, everything needs water to survive. That's why in California, we're having such a struggle for it right now. It's because the farmers need it and the environment needs it and the city needs it. And it's like, we can't all have it all the, all the time. So water is a very, very deep symbol for agriculture but we see it as a symbol of death. It kills his dad. It almost kills him a few times. He gets his head bonked. I can't, I, I can't even count how many times because of the water spot almost dies because of the water. The pterodactyls die because of the water. Like the water is a very, very dangerous thing. The rain, you know, the rain comes several times throughout and every time it rains, you know, he has PTSD and he just starts, you know, kind of running away and freaking out. Like the water has a very, very, you know, deep impact on him, but it's also the symbol of rebirth. You know, he comes out of the water, a different person, you know, when he first gets swept away out of anger, he comes out all of a sudden caring about spot and becoming a more mature person. That's that's hell bent on surviving, you know, like throughout the, like when he saves spot at the end of the day, the water brings him back and all of a sudden he's mature again. He lets spot go with his family and he comes home looking like his dad to his mom because of how much he's grown. You know, like the, it seems like every time a big shift in the story had to happen, he had to get washed out of the way first. And then he had to come back and, and be reborn. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's <laughs> really fascinating. I love that symbolism. Yeah. I, I, I do. Cause I do, I do think when I think of water, I think of it in both terms. Like I, you know, I've been in the Navy, so I've been in the middle of the ocean and seen right. how terrifying and destructive Mm-hmm. water can be but I've, I also was a scuba diver so I've gotten to go like very very deep underwater and feel how serene it is and how mm-hmm. relaxing and calm it is and also I've drank water because I'm a human that survived this long so <laughs> you know obviously it is it is essential for life so that yeah it's it's fascinating that in this movie it is it is all of those things it's, yes. again going back to morality not good or bad it just is it's part of nature it's a force of nature Right. And that's a big thing too, throughout the movie is that there's a conflict between nature and, and civilization, you know, like, and that's mm-hmm. one, one of the things I've been trying to prove for a long time through the mini series and just through the podcast in general is that agriculture serves as a bridge between society and nature that, you know, it's, it's our connection to the natural world because we're using the natural world to get food and, and other resources. But at the same time, it's more civilized than just going out and picking it off of some wild tree or, you know, go hunting a wild animals because we're, we're organizing the natural order basically. So agriculture, you know, at least in, in, you know, in my perspective serves as that bridge. And we see that even happening in the movie, you know, Arlo dips his toe into the natural world by leaving the bridge and it bites him back. You know, he has to learn how to, how to deal with the natural world. You know, that distinction between, what their version of society is because we you know even when we first established agriculture you know centuries ago we just had agriculture and the natural world we didn't have the other side of the bridge yet that was you know the, the other side of the bridge it was just those two as soon as we started to develop cities you know and and technology and you know urbanization that's when you started to see more of agriculture becoming a bridge and today's society that bridge is is almost you know it's all but broken you know agriculture is is kind of left out of the left out of the thought and this movie and other movies like it serve an important role of, Hey, nature's still out there. And if we're not actively engaging with it, it will bite us really hard, you know? So absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well said. I, yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. All right. Uh, yeah. I, I, I kind of wanted, I had my, my note on their agriculture equals nature bridge. And I wanted to, wanted to cover that, but totally. um, awesome. Um, 
there was something yeah, something else. uh something i i talk about a lot of my podcast is the intersection of nature and technology and mm. how like those are those are always uh not always in conflict sometimes you know sometimes we develop technology to sort of reconcile nature or, or to um to to in 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 our opinion i guess save the natural world or or mm. restore or uh, preserve things but um but often it's it's the destructive force like our our need to develop technology is what leads to you know plowing fields and and taking uh, not pl- like what am I, what am I, a devastating entire um, right forests and and things like yeah yeah, definitely. You know, and, that, and that's that's a really important point too. I mean, that's a discussion that we have on the podcast all the time. You know, is that you know, yes, agriculture as a you know as a development of technology as a science definitely can have destructive elements to it. You know, there's there's a there's a destructive piece of agriculture because you have to destroy natural land to produce it. Um, there's you know there's methods of agriculture that are definitely far from the most environmentally friendly. Most of those we've kind of gotten rid of, and we've adapted more environmentally friendly methods in recent years. But the, you know, the recent, the most recent developments of technology have all been focused on that relationship with the environment. You know, we've, we've we've developed technology that can take what we used to, you know, what we used to use to harm the environment and now use it to help the environment. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, before we had, you know, pesticides that poison soils. Now we, we've been able to, to use biological technologies that can make it so crops don't need to be sprayed with as many pesticides that we, we reduce our, our footprint on the soil now we have technologies that can tell us where the where the most micro uh, activity is in soil so we know how to protect it and make sure it doesn't get destroyed uh, now we use methods that require less tillage that way those microbiomes don't get you know ripped up and, and have to restart again um mm. We have machines that take, you know, methane and carbon emissions and turn it into reusable energy instead of just putting it out into the atmosphere. Like we've developed so much technology that is beneficial to that relationship between agriculture and the environment. And, you know, it's understandable that the talk about technology being mostly it's, it's created with the intention of helping the world when in reality it's causing more damage than it is, than it is helping. But, you know, through the, you know, through the cultivation of, you know, of nature, we've been able to kind of maintain that original intention. You know, we, we've been able to, to mend our relationship with, with nature in, in ways that we haven't been able to do really ever since the beginning of technology itself. And, and I, I always go back to the idea that like we, as a species, there's a lot that we might, there's a lot of damage that we might do to the planet, but in the end, all we're like, the worst thing we're going to do is make it so that we can't survive We're not going to actually destroy the planet. The planet right. is way too powerful <laughs> for us to effectively destroy it. Um, is that, is that a, is that realistic? Like, if, is, is that ambitious? What I'm saying that, um, that like, at worst, we'll wipe ourselves out, but we won't destroy Mother Earth itself. Or do we actually have the enough destructive capability to do some permanent damage to the planet? I would say that you're on. I think the. I think that you're on the right track. I think that. I mean, obviously, there's something to be said about our use of radioactivity and that kind of stuff. Like, there's there's definitely damage we can do to the planet. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that we can do enough. Um, at least, at least not not in not in the time that we have because you know there, there's only a there, there's a set clock on how long humanity is going to be around i don't think that we have yeah. the time to develop enough you know 
yeah, I, I really don't think that we're going to get to a point where we can damage Earth that much. I mean, if you think about it, Earth is kind of a living thing in and of itself. It's made up of a bunch of living things, but it's still a living thing. Mm-hmm. You're trying to kill the largest living thing that we know about. That is not an easy thing to do. And it can fight back really hard, <laughs> and all the living things on it are really good at fixing themselves. So, like, yeah. it, it seems like, you know, like like you said, we could, you know, we could make it so Earth is completely uninhabitable for us. All the other living things, they've been living here for a lot longer than we have. They're going to they're gonna be just fine. You know, they'll figure mm-hmm. out how to, like, trees and sharks and crocodiles, they've been here way longer than we have. They've adapted to things that we have never been able to figure out how to adapt to. Like, there will always be a species that will be able to adapt to whatever it is we throw at them. We're just not that adaptive. You know, it, it takes a while for humans to, to evolve compared to other animals. Um, well yeah for the most part um i think that yeah i think that you're absolutely right in, in that you know in saying that is that you know we should do our best to mitigate damage so we don't destroy ourselves but if we do then we do earth is going to be fine yeah yeah in, in the blip in the blip of time that we exist on the planet right. compared to the entirety of its timeline it's gonna like at some point in millions of years from now it's gonna be like well that was a fun experiment but uh, we're done with humanity <laughs> right and then maybe who knows the dinosaurs will come back and we'll get a good dinosaur for real yeah or maybe like octopi if octopi you know get out of the ocean (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly so i think that let's see i had a couple other notes on here i wanted to i wanted to go over so we talked about the fear of storms thing a little bit but i wanted to go into that bit more um so we talked about how you know arlo obviously whenever he sees a storm he gets really really freaked out you know he got he has to go hide he thinks he's gonna die or that somebody close to him is gonna die like he has like the worst, you know, trauma with, with these storms, uh, which understandable. He watches dad die in front of him. That's not exactly an easy thing to do. Um, the fear of storms is something that I think is really interesting because, you know, if, if we're looking at this from the, from the agricultural lens, fear of storms is a very, very common fear in agriculture. I mean, for a reason, a, a storm can come tomorrow and wipe out every field that we've seen. Like that's just kind of like I was saying earlier, agriculture is completely unpredictable in that sense. We're dealing with nature for crying out loud. You know, we can only predict nature so much, you know, like the weatherman says, you know, temperature every day, you know, like he could say, Oh, it's going to rain tomorrow. It doesn't mean it's going to, you know, it means there's a pretty good chance, but we can't say for sure. You know, like I had, you know, we have weathermen in, in California that say all the time that, you know, it's going to, it's going to start raining in November. It hasn't rained in November. Like I don't remember the last time it's raining in November. Like it doesn't, it doesn't do that, you know, it, or maybe like, you know, two inches but nothing crazy you know it's it's one of those things it's like the natural world is so unpredictable that we can kind of just cross our fingers and hope we got it right and because of that you know one massive storm can come by and wipe out an entire farmer's land and that farmer has nothing left you know so like a fear of storms is a very very realistic thing for a farm kid to to understand not just because he watched his dad get killed by one but also because he knows that if a storm gets bad enough his family's going to die. Like they're, they're going to lose their entire, you know, savings of food Mm -hmm. because he knows that he's not there to help pick it. And that his brother and sister aren't enough to help pick the entire field and that they're all going to get thrown into the, you know, they're not going to get thrown into the silo fast enough. So they're not going to have food for the winter. Like seeing that fear, like have you ever seen the movie, the Martian? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you know how in the Martian, uh, which we, we had an episode on the Martian. So spoiler warning, but not really, um because we had talked about it in that episode too towards the end you know how his farm explodes yeah so yeah he, yeah, he he lets too much oxygen in or something like that mm-hmm. yeah and yeah and his farm completely explodes 
the when when you see the reaction on his face when his when his form explodes like he's completely heartbroken like he's just devastated he thinks well i'm gonna die mm-hmm. that is like the like I, I was talking about in the episode we did on it that's the most realistic reaction to that i could possibly think of like a farmer finding out that they're not gonna be able to farm anymore and that they have no way of making a living that is like soul crushing right there like that that is enough yeah. to like back in 2009 in in my hometown of Tulare actually in the entire country but i we saw it most in our in our area there was a crash in the uh, dairy economy you know milk milk prices were way down butter prices like everything was way down um the dairymen were so stressed out about it that a bunch of them were selling off their their farms but nobody was buying them because nobody wanted to buy a dairy when the market's that low we saw the highest rate of dairy dairyman suicide that's ever happened there was like a ridiculous amount of like a lot of our close friends we lost because of that, because of that crash. And that wasn't even because they lost their farms. It's just because they knew that there was no point in farming anymore. You know, it, they, they lost their will to, to continue. Like, and, and it wasn't just because they weren't gonna be able to make money or because they were worried about being homeless. They were so ashamed of themselves for, for failing their family, basically, you know, like, cause farmers take family very seriously. They take, you know, the, the continuation of their, of their family farm and very seriously if they lose that they basically think of themselves as the disappointment of the family you know a sixth generation farmer is letting down not just his dad but his dad and his dad and his dad and his dad like that's something that is very difficult for them to recover from like actual uh, farmer mental health is something that's not talked about very often but it's something that's more recently being taken into consideration because of how many farmers are, are committing suicide because of how many farmers how many farms are being lost you know on, on the daily basis and so this is a very you know long and, and winded explanation, but going back to the movie, Arlo has this tremendous fear of storms. And I think part of it is because he lost his dad. I think the other part of it is because he was probably taught from a young age, storms are destructive. And if, a, if one gets bad enough, we're not going to, ha- we're not going to be okay. You know, like everything yeah. that we know is going to be gone basically. And I thought that was kind of, I, it got a lot of credit in the movie. I think it could have gotten more. And it's, and it's, it's really interesting too because it's like you you depend on rain if you didn't have rain then the crops would be too it's like you you need just the right amount you need that balance Mm -hmm. too much too much is is going to drown the crops or wash them away entirely but not enough is going to make them unable to grow and and dry them out um so there's just yeah it's just and you have no control over, I mean, really, they, they live next to a river. They're able to sort of irrigate and, and I guess, um, uh, sprinkle their crops as much as they want to, but they have no control of its sky. Mm-hmm. Right. No, exactly. And you know, that's that's the biggest concern with with a lot of areas of agriculture is that, you know, you only have so much control over over what you do to it, you know? Like he, like we, we've adapted technology now that's able to mitigate a lot of that issue, but still, I mean, in, in the mid, you know, in the Midwest, there's only so many crops you can grow just because tornadoes will wipe everything else out. Um, you know, in, in a lot of areas, it'll rain too much. So like they bear, like in Europe, they barely irrigate their fields at all because of how much it rains. They, you know, they can't mm-hmm. afford to, if they irrigate for one, it's wasting money. And for two, you, you run the risk of overwatering your crops. Um, you know, here in California, we don't get freezes very often. When we do, it's devastating to our oranges. So we have to have giant wind machines that that can blow off all of the all the frost to keep the to keep the trees from freezing over. You know, like we have preventative measures, 
but there's only so much we can do, you know, and, and if, if just one bad storm hits and all of a sudden you see this massive shift in the economy, that's going to mess up a lot of farmers, not just the one that got hurt. It's, and it's also interesting that to the farmers, the storm is something that they fear, something that they, they at least have like a healthy respect for, Mm -hmm. if not fear versus the, the opportunistic predatory pterodactyls who literally, literally say, the storm provides. Yes. They're excited when there's a storm because that means more food for them, more opportunity for them. Right. And you know, I think that that's an interesting, you know, comparison. I actually didn't even think about that. But that that almost illustrates, you know, the point that, that I'm trying to make is that, you know, the the things that we consider evil, you know, the scavengers, the ones that are looking for anything that's dead, they get thrilled when a storm comes around because they know just as well as anybody, the storm means death. You know, like mm-hmm. no matter, it doesn't matter what's dying. Something is dying in that storm because storms are bad. Like, like you said, rain can be an incredibly useful thing for a farmer, but a storm, a storm is something else. That's, that's excessive rain. That's lightning. That's snow. That's, you know, whatever, like hail, a storm is not a good thing for, for those involved in the agriculture industry and anyone, you know, our Arlo is, is I, I doubt the only character in that movie that gets scared when storms come around. Like, let's look at, mm-hmm. let's look at the T-Rexes. We didn't see them during the storms. I guarantee you that they're scared during storms too, for a very different reason though. Yeah. So yeah, it probably, it probably uh, panics the, the, the herd and they mm-hmm. probably have to deal with that. And they, you know, I don't, I, we don't see if they have any structures to protect their herd from, from storms or from excessive rain. So yeah, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. I, I did want to make a, a one note that I thought was really funny. If you watch the T-Rexes run, like for one, they, they lope like horses, but their yep. arms, it looks like they're holding reins the whole time. I thought that was hilarious. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I've always thought of them as like cowboy T-Rexes. And yes. I love that little, that style of how they animate them. That's so, that's so clever. And so you could tell that that was like a, 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 a deliberate decision that they made to make it look like that. I thought that's, yeah, I love that you picked yes which i mean i'm I'm a big you know having come from a from a farming family i i'm not i i grew up around like cowboy culture like i I grew up going to rodeos like i i've i've you know i have ridden horses my whole life my sister trains horses like i i'm very familiar with the cowboy culture so like i saw that and i was like that's really cool like they they took the time to actually do that plus um butch you know the dad he is like, you know, he's King Cowboy, you know, he he's like the the, the most uh, like cowboy T-Rex of, of, you know, of the bunch. And like, he even like talks in like cowboy language, like, you know, whenever he's talking oh, yeah. about Sam about, Elliott. Yeah, <laughs> I love Sam Elliott. He's 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 so good. Um, yeah. And like whenever he's telling him to go on the rock, he's like telling him like, oh, yeah, you're, you know, you're gonna you're gonna hurry past them and you're gonna go hooping and hollering all this kind of stuff. And I was like, what? And like the, the daughter has to explain to him actually what's, what's happening. Just that mm-hmm. little nod at like, even cat, like even people who grew up in, in the country, you know, on farms and stuff don't always understand what cowboys mean just because they speak such a different language. Cause they're, you know, they're a different type of country, you know, and there's, there's subcultures within country people as well. Yeah. And I love, uh, he also, he also kind of, um, gets to articulate the theme of the movie about mm-hmm. like pushing through your fear. Yes. Arlo, he tells that story about the croc biting him and, and Arlo assumes, you know, well, well, how, you know, how, like, you, how are you not scared? And he's like, I didn't say I was, wasn't scared. I, of course I was scared. scared. Like fear is part of life. Like you just have to learn how to accept it and kind of live with fear. But he doesn't, he doesn't try to, he doesn't have that bravado 
that you might expect from a character like that it's actually very touching and it's very modern yeah he's like no fear is a real thing it's just it's all about pushing through the fear and, and understanding that the fear is going to be there no matter what it's, it's like a storm you can't control it you can just adapt to it yes i, I that was like my favorite part of the whole movie like i which butch is my i, I love butch as a character i think he's a fantastic mm-hmm. character um and which it's not just because i love sam elliott but that's also part of it too i think he's just really really cool and he serves an important role um you know because he he's kind of like the he's like a father figure that that arlo needs you know he kind of gives him that little push that arlo's been looking for um and he gives him the assurance that his own dad didn't which is fear is okay you know like mm-hmm. and not only is it okay it's expected you know you're not expected to be completely fearless you're expected to learn how to adapt to it and that's you know that's really really important for him to learn and he does you know um i thought that it's was something really cool. It's something that Game of, I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones fan, but they they articulated on that show too, where Ned Stark says something about like, you know, fear, when you're afraid, that's the only time you can be brave. Mm. It's because you have to, that's when you have an opportunity to overcome your fear. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the whole idea that, you know, courage isn't, isn't the absence of fear. It's the ability, it's, it's being terrified and doing it anyways. Um, well said. Yes. And, and I just, and that, that whole thing that he talks about, you know, it's like, I was scared the whole time, but you know, that didn't stop me like that, that mentality is like, you can write it off as yes, he's a cowboy. So he's going to be all tough and, you know, he's kind of you know, gritty and all that kind of stuff, which is, which is true. But, you know, looking at it from, from the lens of somebody who's taking care of livestock or, you know, somebody who's taking care of a farm, like we mentioned with the whole storm thing, it could go away at any moment. You know, they're constantly terrified. You know, everything scares them. You know, the, 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 in, in our own world, markets could crash. Uh, people can, you know, the government can come and shut them down. Um, you know, like animal, you know, animal rights activists are a big thing. Environmentalists are a big thing. Like there's so many different things that farmers have to worry about. And like fear is a common part of agriculture and a common part of just life in general. You know, you're always going to be scared of something, but it's, it's the, it's the mentality of, this is too worth it to not do it. You know, even, even if this terrifies me, the payoff is way better than, than, you know, the, the regret of not doing it. And so I think that that was a really valuable lesson that he taught that, you know, still illustrates that idea of like, yeah, he's, you know, he's a cowboy. So of course he's not going to be, he's not, he's not gonna let fear get him down, but it applies to a lot of things. It applies to agriculture, it applies to just daily life. You know, it's a good, it's a good lesson for, for a young boy like Arlo to just learn about, about the world is that everyone's scared of something. It's just a matter of learning how to control that fear that makes you a mature person. And it's not just, you know, I'm trying to do this all for, for me, or I'm not just afraid for my own well-being or my own life it's it's there are other people depending on this and yes yeah if i let it defeat me then they're going to be they're going to be let down they're going to starve right and you know and and that ties into another point I, i had written down here too which is um you know a big part of maturity and you know this goes for for arlo as well as as well as people involved in agriculture uh it's a lot easier to get over your fears when you're when you're thinking about taking care of others you know like Arlo overcomes almost all of his fears when it comes to taking care of Spot. You know, that is his number mm-hmm. one priority. All of his responsibility gets gets brought up and all of his fears go down the drain whenever he sees his the people he cares about in trouble. You know, like whenever he comes home, he rushes straight to his mom and he helps he helps he helps out on the farm immediately. After his dad died, he could have been completely depressed and not helped out on the farm at all. He did more work than anybody else on the farm. Like he strives incredibly well when it comes to taking care of others. And that's a big thing too, is, you know, like you mentioned, 
there's a the stress of, you know, we're feeding the world here. You know, people are relying on this food. We can't afford to, to just sit around and, and worry. You know, there's, there's work to be done. There's, there's things that need to you know, need to get done, you know, and that's, that's, that's exactly how it is, you know? And I think that that was really well illustrated in the movie because that's, that's another thing that a lot of people can relate to is that it's a lot easier to take care of somebody else than it is to take care of yourself a lot of the time. Well said, well said. <laughs> awesome. And I think, there's one other thing I wanted to, oh, on, on that same note, Arlo gets scars. By the end of the movie, he's he's covered in scars and stuff. I thought that was really cool because, you know, he has the whole talk with Butch about like, hey, where'd you get your scar? And like, you know, they're talking about how scars are like a good, that's a good symbol of you put in work, you've gone through hardships, you know, you, you've developed as a person. He has all kinds of scars when he comes back home. And his dad had scars too. His dad was covered in them. And you could tell mm-hmm. like, you know, his you know when he sees his dad in, in that vision you know like where he's all tied up in the in the vines after after spot gets captured that was yes that was so sad his, yeah. his dad you know rescues him quote unquote and gives him the strength to kind of get out of himself but you can see him looking at his dad and they're both beat up i mean like they both got mm-hmm. got scars and marks and scratches all over both of them his dad won't like turn to talk to him he's kind of just walking and like part of you is like did he just die? Like, is he like, is, is he walking with his dad? Like, you know, and then, then you realize like, Oh no, this is, this is his dad waiting for him to realize that he's finally a man that he's finally grown into himself. And when he finally realizes it, he's like, I, you know, I, I told you you're, you're me and so much more like when that happens, first of all, waterworks. And second yeah. of all, like that was like the moment that you're like, Oh, Arlo's got it. Like he's, you know, he's kind of figured out like what, what's been going on. And when you look at him, he just stands with like this, this confidence and with this, like, yeah, like I'm, I'm my dad and more, you know, like th- that whole thing. That's like a huge, you know, that's a huge moment for him. And just like for, you know, for the audience, they're like, wow. Like, because facing hardships is like the, is like, you know, that's the biggest part of growing up. It's the biggest part of maturity and, and of developing as a person. If you don't face hardships, you really have a hard time developing properly. Mm-hmm. Arlo's faced more hardships than most people, you know, would in, in their life at, you know, at his age. And it's not until he realizes that the person that he loved most died and the person that he loved second most is about to die that he realizes he needs to get his stuff together and get out there and do something about it. And he does. And that's kind of, you know, that's the cool part of the movie. I love the visual of how he figures it out when he, he sees the dad walking. He sort of, you know, because he has abandonment issues, I guess. Um, has It seems like he assumes, or maybe, maybe I have abandonment issues. And I assumed <laughs> at first, like, wait a minute did he really is this really his dad that like did he survive and he's just walking away he's just ignoring him come on and then he notices that he's not making footprints in the mud and that's when he puts it together oh this is i'm i'm hallucinating or like i'm you know that's that's ghost dad that's not my real dad (laughs) (laughs) right Um, yeah yeah no exactly so yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really cool. I think that his his development because obviously it's like a coming of age movie. I think that his development of the whole movie is fantastic. I think that yeah. they they did a very good job of illustrating how he should react to a lot of these situations. You know, like because he still scared Arlo for like most of the movie, and then it's not until like the T Rex situation where he starts to kind of realize, hey, I can kind of take care of myself. Like he fights the Raptors off of Butch, and that's that's what kind mm-hmm. of first starts to make him realize. And then he like stumbles a little bit more and he starts to realize that, you know, kind of like you mentioned, he has a bit of abandonment issues. And when spot wants to leave, he's not quite ready for that yet. And, you know, you start to see, it's almost like a, like a roller coaster of like, you know, he starts to get really confident and then he starts to kind of waver a little bit back down and he gets really confident again. And he kind of wavers back down, which is natural, you know, like he's still a kid. He's still kind of developing, 
that's a big part of, of, you know, growing up too, is that realizing that you don't have to be confident and, and, you know, strong all the time. You know, there's times of weakness that are okay, as long as you don't let it control you. And, you know, he does a good job of regulating those until he can't anymore. He, he lets fear consume him so much. The thing he cares about most spot gets completely, you know, snatched from him. And then he gets lost in, you know, in the woods and he has to kind of put himself back together again and go and save his friend. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me see. So I kind of, you know, closing out towards towards the end of the movie, I have a couple more notes, and I I don't know if you have more on 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 your side that you wanted to talk about. We can get to that as well. No, that's that's everything. Oh, you know, I had one question that you okay. might be able to um, uh, like inform or maybe speculate on the when this might be random but like when when um when there's that snake creature oh yes uh, and they're fighting that snake creature i noticed it had legs and i wondered if that's is there some sort of like real i guess there it's sort maybe it might have been like some sort of salamander or something that is similar to that um but do you think that was like meant to be a salamander or is that like speculation on with 65 million years of evolution this snake would have evolved feet. So I'm glad you brought the snake because I had it in my notes too and I crossed it out because I was like, this isn't going to be important, but I think it is. Um, there's a very, like, I could do a whole episode on the snake alone because there's a lot of symbolism there. Um, okay. But it's, it's really, snakes are a really, really weird thing. Um, so there's this, I'm going to give you two answers. So I think that the first answer, the more likely answer is that it's either a salamander of some kind or the snake just happened to evolve with legs just because that's just how it is. I think it's a really interesting detail though, because as we know, snakes don't have feet or legs and this snake stood on its hind legs like, and snakes mm-hmm. usually stand up like that, but this one was actually standing on its, on its hind legs and it had its, it had its hands up. That's really interesting to me because as we've seen snakes don't need to do that, but they did anyways. And snakes. So this is going to get, this is going to turn into kind of a, a weird uh, side tangent, but it's, it's, it's important. I promise snakes have a very unique history with humans. Um, for, for most of human history, snakes and his, uh, snakes and humans have kind of co-evolved as a predator prey kind of situation because snakes prey on humans. Mm-hmm. There's actually a, a weird, or they prey on monkeys mostly, but um, like, you know, throughout like throughout, uh, evolutionary history, primates and snakes have had this kind of weird rivalry. And the reason that a lot of snakes can climb trees is because they're trying to hunt after, uh, hunt after a lot of different primates. And the thing is interesting is that snakes tend to, tend to go after that's actually part of the reason why why primates first learned how to climb trees is so they can get away from snakes and then snakes figured out how to do it and then primates figured out how to uh like there there's theories that the reason that our 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 eyes have color is because we we use them to find colorful fruit in the trees and that way we could eat without having to go down and go near the snakes and then the snakes evolved to have colors that match the fruit. So they could trick us into, into grabbing them instead, just like they do in the movie. Like it's just been constantly <laughs> like, you know, one evolves and the other evolves to match it. It's like this, you know, it's, just like this it's arms thing. race. Yes, exactly. And so I thought that was really funny that spots the one that notices the snake in the tree that, that Arlo doesn't even notice it. And that, you know, the human happens to notice the snake and the human doesn't climb trees very often. Like this is a human that does not mess with trees. He only messes with fruit because that's what Arlo wants. 
and yeah. that and that the snake almost wasn't even going to go after arlo he more so wanted spot and spot and our and spot and the snake fought that was really interesting to me and there's a lot of like so there's there's even like there's theories that the reason that like snakes are such a strong symbolism in like the bible and that sort of thing is because of our strong rivalry in evolutionary history that the reason that we associate the snake with the devil is because the snake has always been our biggest rival and that like the only reason that the snake appears in the garden of eden the garden of eden with the forbidden fruit is because snakes protect fruit to try to trick primates into eating it like there's all kinds of like there's a very very deep and rich history into the evolutionary you know progress of snakes and primates and i think and then like i said this could be an entirely unintentional I think that the reason that this snake looks different than most snakes that we know is because humans didn't evolve the same way they were supposed to, that humans evolved a different route than, than normally they would have. And so snakes didn't feel the need to evolve in the same way that they would have had to, to keep up with humans. So they hmm. grew arms and legs because maybe they have a different predator they have to go after now. It's not humans anymore. And so they have a, a bit of a different physiology depending on whatever the new predator or the, whatever the new prey is. That's so cool. I'm so glad I asked. That is, that is the coolest thing I've ever learned about snakes. <laughs> that they yeah. like try to mimic fruit. Yes. Like bright colors. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And snakes are like, they're incredibly interesting creatures. And there's a reason that we associate them with so many like negative things. Like having a fear of snakes is like almost like a human instinct. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's almost more unnatural to have a, ha to not have a fear of snakes than it is to have a fear of snakes. Like most yeah. things like, you know, it's pretty natural. to have a fear of like spiders and stuff like that. Cause you know, they can be, they can, you know, they can kill you or whatever, but like for the most part, you can get over most fears. Snakes are one of the few that's like incredibly hard to get over because we associate it with such a negative thing from like a evolutionary standpoint. We just don't like snakes. And the reason actually, ironically enough, a big reason why we adopted dogs as our first companions is because they're really good at getting rid of snakes, like mm. really good at getting rid of snakes. And we see that, you know, even, even though he's a human spot has a pretty good job of getting rid of that snake. And so like, you know, like the, the, the co-evolution is just, it's so interesting. And like, you know, we associate snakes with like there, there's, there's theories that the earliest ideas of dragons were based off of snakes because we were like, well, we don't like reptiles. So we're just going to turn our worst enemy in all of our stories forever into a giant snake with wings that can breathe fire. And that became the dragon. There's also a theory that the dragon, the dragon mythology came from uh, an ancient civilization accidentally discovering dinosaur fossils. Mm. And you would just assume without modern science that like, or you would just sort of fill, your brain would fill in the gaps of like, what kind of, what would this skull of a T, if you found like a T-Rex skull, like what would this look like? And then you, your imagination would draw a snake pretty a snake-like dragon creature right that that makes sense and that that explains why in every part of the world there's different ideas of what a dragon looks like like yeah. you know in asia they have like the very long bodied dragons without wings and without like feet and stuff like that they're just kind of long bodied whereas in europe they're very you know very uh quadruped like with a long tail and like wings and they breathe fire like that explains the difference between which which makes a lot of sense but it's it seems to me that dragons in every culture seem to have somewhat of a similarity to being reptilian and snake-like. And there's probably a combination of both. They probably found bones and said, well, you know what? We already don't like snakes. Let's just pretend that they're dragons and we'll put that in all of our stories. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, but that was kind of, I'm glad you brought up the snake because I, I wanted to talk about that, but I was like, I don't know if this is going to be relevant or not, but I'm going to put it in my notes just in case. But yeah, the snake is a very, very interesting symbol for, for that whole story. 
Hell yeah, I'm really glad I asked. <laughs> and like I said, that's one that I can go on and on about, but that's kind of that's the spark notes of, of kind of what my thoughts are on the snake. Dope. All right. Um, so looking at the rest of my notes, oh, there there is another big thing I wanted to, to cover up before before kind of closing out the you know the final thoughts here. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that Arlo happens to meet the cowboys and he meets the bandits and the, the raptors and he meets like a bunch of different types of dinosaurs. From what we understand, a lot of Arlo's family doesn't get out of the farm much. You know, like we don't really know that they have any other friends. It's kind of just them, you know, which I thought was interesting because, you know, in, in older civilizations, when, when agriculture was first established, usually you and all of your neighbors had farms, like everyone had a farm. And like you had like, you know, areas where people would start to eventually kind of branch off and have farms on their own, like out in the wilderness. And then they would just kind of bring all of their product to the market for, you know, to sell like later in the month or whatever. But it wasn't super common that people just kind of farmed on their own and didn't interact with anybody else in society ever. Arlo seems to be the first of his family to really make friends outside of the farm. And the reason that's significant is because especially in today, but just kind of in the history of agriculture, having a network is like the biggest part of having a functional farm. You know, if, mm. if you, if you want to, if you want to be effective in agriculture, having friends is a big, big part of doing it. And we, in that, you know, in agriculture, we kind of have this saying is, you know, it's, it's not necessarily what you know, it's who, you know, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of, you know, even if you don't know something, you can usually have a friend that knows that you can ask. And, you know, we, we come from rural communities and rural communities, social is, or so socialism is the wrong word socialization that's what i was looking for is is a lot more common i i feel like than than in urban developments you know like you have like entire towns that knows you you know they all know each other's name and they all hang out together and they all go to you know they go to church together or they just kind of you know they spend the weekends together like all these families are so close they all know you know everything about each other's family where in urban developments that's still happening to a to a degree, but it's it's a lot smaller scale. You know, it's not quite as as expansive as like you can't just walk into the, the supermarket and see ten people you know. Whereas if you go to a small town, you can't walk into a, t- a supermarket without seeing ten people you know. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that he happens to be the first in his family to really build a network, and he seems to be the first in his family that's going to fix the farm. And that I thought that was kind of a, a nice tie in that you know socialization is a big part of of producing an effective agricultural operation and a big part of producing an effective society. Do you think that they are like his, Arlo's mom and dad, like, do you think that they're deliberately isolated or is it just maybe an aspect of their life that we never get the opportunity? Like the movie just doesn't, doesn't depict it. I think that, I think that his dad, at least, maybe his mom too, definitely has some kind of socialization before you know the movie started, because um, his dad seems to be very hardened. He seems to kind of know a lot about the world, despite having mm-hmm. you know presumably lived on the farm his whole life. I would like to think that he's probably interacted with the T Rexes before, or that he's been to the watering hole that they go to. Like I feel like he's kind of gotten out. His mom probably has too, at least a little bit. Um, I definitely don't think that his siblings have it all. I, it doesn't seem like they've left mm-hmm. the farm hardly at all since they've been born. Um, but I definitely think that his dad, you know, for, for all the knowledge and like, you know, like the, the, the charisma that he has, there's no way that he hasn't, you know, gone out and made some friends. He definitely just kind of has that personality of like, you know, the old, you know, the old farmer that just kind of talks, you know, he knows everybody kind of thing. Yeah. Cause, cause presumably one day, you know, Arlo and his brother and sister, their parents will inevitably pass on and they'll inherit the farm, but, but 
will all three of them just like stay together until they die and 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 keep the farm going up until then or one of them because they presumably they've got to branch out in some way to find a mate and and make more children to work on the farm right so like that has to there has to be some sort of path to that there has to be some sort of like social hub maybe the watering hole maybe maybe yeah yeah and and you make an interesting point you know one of the last things i had on my list was that you know there's usually at least in in any farming family which this is more of a a modern day issue but there's usually one kid that wants to keep the farm and the rest of them usually don't or none of them want to keep the farm it's really hard to keep somebody Mm -hmm. on the farm just because of the you know the amount of hardships that they have to go through to maintain it um, that was less of an issue back in the day. Back in the day, it was kind of like, you know, everyone fights over who gets to keep the farm or like they kind of branch off and make their own farms or whatever. And maybe that's kind of what would happen here is, you know, Arlo would keep the family farm because he's the one that worked, you know, the hardest for it. And then the other two would kind of branch off and either go start their own lives or they go start their own farms. Maybe they go to the watering hole and meet some people and kind of go off and do their own things. Um, I could definitely see arlo taking over the 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 current farm just because you know of his dedication to it and he's you know he was the last uh the the last mark on on the silo he kind of earned his his place at that farm i don't see it being very common because at at least this hasn't been the case in you know in human history that all three of them stay on that farm usually that's for one it's just not the smart thing to do you know it makes more sense that they all kind of split off and do their own farms or or their own you know their own lifestyles just because they can expand more land that way um but I, I think because of Arlo's confidence, he'll probably, you know, he'll probably venture out again, maybe go to the watering hole, meet another Brachiosaurus and, you know, start to kind of start a family or something like that. Um, or, you know, what it, whatever the case may be, I think that it's more likely that they kind of split off and do their own things as time goes on. Yeah, I would think so. It, an aspect of it that we don't see, I wonder if there, there are like, um, I wonder if this is a common thing with like large families that grow up on farms. Are there usually, is there usually like one of the siblings that is just not interested in this farm life at all? Like, like they're like the monotony of it maybe, or the, Mm. the, the, they, they don't want to grow up and stay on this farm. They want to see more of the, or they want to branch out and like maybe do something that is completely different from what they were raised in. Is that a common thing or is that, Less no, absolutely. That's culture families. That's actually one of the more common problems in agriculture is that it's usually a lot more than just one of the kids that wants to get away from the farm. You know, uh, it's usually a hard. It, a lot of farmers have a hard time finding anyone to take over their farm. You know, mm-hmm. either the kids don't want it, or like the you know the nephews or nieces don't want. Like nobody seems to want the farm, and so they usually either get sold to another farmer or they get bought up as as urban you know urban land and they get turned into housing or whatever. Um, which is, you know, that's a, that's a big issue facing agriculture too, is, you know, the number of farms is going down by the day and the size of farms is going up because small farms can't really survive all that well. And part of it is because the lack of people involved in agriculture, but a lot of it's because of regulation and markets and all that kind of stuff. Um, I do have a couple numbers for you. So the average age of the American farmer is about 58 years old and he's getting older. Uh, A few years ago, it was only 56. Mm -hmm. So yeah, farmers getting older, and we're having an incredibly hard time getting new, you know, young people involved in agriculture just because they don't see a point in it. Um, that's, you know, kind of like the issue you described. A lot of kids grow up on farms. They're like, yeah, that's cool and all, but I want to see the world. I want to go to Europe, mm-hmm. or I want to stay. I want to go to other parts of the United States, or I want to go, you know, not be a farmer. Um, yeah, I think that's perfectly fine. I, I never, you know. 
I never advocate for the idea that we need like a ton of farmers. I don't think that we need a ton of farmers. I think we are kind of figuring out how to, how to make do with what we have. I think that always having more people involved in agriculture is a good thing. But one of the things I always advocate for, cause I'm, I'm studying to be a high school agriculture teacher. It's like, I can influence yeah. kids to have more, more of an understanding of, of where their food comes from. Um, one of the big things I advocate for is don't, don't get involved in agriculture for the wrong reasons. You know, if, if you get involved in it, you should love it kind of thing. Don't just go into it because there's a need for it, but it's more important to have an awareness of agriculture than it is to get involved in agriculture. Um, mm. You know, if, if everyone in the world knew where their food comes from, we would have a lot less issues than if a few people knew and they got more involved, you know? Um, Cause like I said, I think that we're doing just fine with, with the number of farmers we have, we could definitely use more. And there's a, a big part of the conversation that gets left out too, is agriculture is more than just farming. You know, as we talked about, there's, there's a lot of different divisions of it. There's livestock, there's farming, there's mining, there's, you know, uh, lumber, there's fishing, all that kind of stuff. But not just that mm-hmm. um, there's agricultural law, there's computer science, there's technology development, there's uh, research, you know, that, to be done. There's, um, you know, there's actual like, you know, there, there's people who write the regulations, there's people who, who regulate the, the uh, markets, there's people like there's brokers for agriculture, there's uh, processors, there's slaughterhouses, like there's so many jobs outside of just the production of food, like just to throw another number at you, the amount of Americans involved in actual food production, like farming, ranching, that kind of stuff is less than 2%. Mm-hmm. So wow. like, yeah, less than 2% and, of Americans. But that's, I'm, and I'm like, well, I was going to ask, like, is, I, I don't know. How, yeah. I don't even know how to ask this question. Cause I don't know how far back to go, but like, what, what did that, what did that number, what did that percentage used to be? Like, uh, what was the tipping point where we got I, very far away from being an ag- agrarian society? Yeah. I, I'd have to look at the specific numbers for you to get a good indication. Cause I haven't, I haven't done research on it in a few years, so I don't remember exactly what they are, but I know that back in like the early like the early 20th century, so like, you know, like, like the 1900s to 1920s or, or that range. Mm, Pre-cities. Yeah. I think that's when it first started to kind of go down quite a bit because, you know, because the urbanization, the development of non-rural jobs that, that needed to be filled, you know, there was, uh, like, especially like in the 1940s and, and 50s with World War II going on, there was a, yeah. a massive push for people to go, you know, go work in, in factories and to kind of, you know, support the war effort. Um, after the 19, after, actually, yeah, after World War II, you saw a big boom in, um, music becoming a new industry. So there was a bunch of people that left the farm to go become yeah. musicians. Like there, there was so much pull away from the farm after really after world war one and two, that that's when it really started to become an issue. So I would say probably like around civil war times, I would say at least half, if not more of the country was dedicated to producing food. Fascinating. And now the music industry, at least like country music Right. seems to be a, a, a very big theme is like promoting farm life and talking about like my tractor and like the, you know <laughs> I'm, i come from a farm i'm proud of that and so it's it's almost like the like like there's a push to to um even though the music industry just i maybe distracted isn't the right word but pulled people away mm-hmm. from farm life it's sort of evolved into a weird thing where it's like self-referential and it's right. like we're trying to, we're trying to, we're trying to make that more, seem more glamorous. Mm-hmm. Living in the city, I could tell you, I know a lot of people that like going to the co-op and, and, and learning how to garden and stuff like that. That's like a, a fun weekend activity. That's like a quaint, fun thing for city folk to do. Right. Um, 
but it's definitely like a choice. Like you do, I live so close to, to multiple fruit markets where I can just go and buy food. Um, I don't think I'll ever have, I, I would like to, but I don't think I'll ever have the need to have to learn how to grow food because of mm-hmm. where I live. And, and, and that's entirely, you know, entirely by choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I think I got myself off on a tangent there. But. No, you're good. But that, you know, and that's absolutely, you make a solid point there. You know, there shouldn't need to be a need for people to know how to grow their own food. Um, I don't think that, like, like I said, I, I don't think that there needs to be a big push for people to get involved in the food production. I think that we're doing fine. Like, you know, if we could get some mm-hmm. more, that'd be awesome. But for one, there's not that much land to really pull from anyway. Like there's there's really mm-hmm. not a whole lot of farmland left. Um, I used to know what the number on that one was too. I can't remember what it is now. Uh, I have to, have to look it up and get get back to you on that. But I'm more pushing for at least know where your food comes from. Because if you know where yeah. it comes from, you know, if, if you're, because like there's, you know, there's legislation that's getting voted on by people who don't know where it's coming from. And so they're voting on things that are like, oh yeah, well that sounds good. And then it actually causes a lot of issues for for the food production and then prices go up and like, well, why are prices going up? It's like, because you voted for them to go up pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. So like there's there's a lot of, well, we call it agricultural literacy. There's a big push right now for agricultural literacy to become more and more common. And I was actually one of the first um, agricultural education-based podcasts to focus on this issue. You know, I, when I first started my podcast three years ago, I was looking for podcasts about this and there were none. I mean, like I searched hmm. hard and I couldn't find anything. So I started my own. I said, well, this is a big issue. I'm trying to be a teacher. I'm looking for podcasts that can help me become a better teacher. And there aren't any out there. Why don't I do it? And so I, I kind of took it upon myself to bring people on here, have them ask me questions, kind of, you know, uh, see if I can answer some of the, you know, some of the misconceptions that get spread out there. Cause I'm actually, I'm doing another episode of the mini series, which by the time they hear this will have already come out um, about how social media and agriculture have kind of hurt each other quite a bit. Um, kind of how, you know, the, the introduction of social media has caused the schism between the rural and urban communities to, to really maximize um, and how agriculture has, has been late to the game, but is starting to kind of catch up a little bit. And that's a whole conversation in and of itself too. But um, yeah, no, I, I've been saying for, you know, for a while now that I really don't care if you're growing the food, as long as you know how it's being grown. Yeah. Is, uh, is, I, I hear that corn syrup is like, mm-hmm. a, is a problem. Like, like you said, corn grows in every single state. Are most farms that grow corn, like is the production geared or I guess the fine the final form of it geared towards like producing corn syrup. You know, you would think so. Uh, most of the corn grown in, in the United States is is uh, sent towards animal feed, actually. So we gotta oh. you know, we gotta fatten up the cows and stuff. So we we grow so a lot of corn for them. Yeah. So corn syrup, like that's yeah. that's part of it, kind of, but like that's not nearly as big of, as, as big of a, a fraction as people tend to think it is. Okay. Huh. So. I have a lot of misconceptions about stuff living <laughs> in a city. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, that that's kind of the whole point of this, right? You know, it's to try to clear yeah. some of those guys up. So awesome. Um, yeah. Any other uh, final thoughts on, on the movie or anything else about the conversation? You know, any other questions I could, I could uh, answer for you? Just, this was extremely educational for me. <laughs> and, and I love, I love, I love learning about this stuff. I really should dedicate more time to it because it's, it, I, I like learning about it out of a, uh, I guess just like a fascination. I have a fascination with learning about the world, learning about the natural world, especially, and learning about like earth science. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I guess I don't have the 
the compulsion to spend as much time on it because I'm not Mark Watney abandoned <laughs> on, on Mars where I need to know this stuff to survive. And I don't see myself ever being abandoned on Mars where right. like having that knowledge is what will save my life. <laughs> um, but I definitely think I should take more responsibility. And I think watching this movie reminded me of that and talking to you definitely made me feel that and reminded me of that. So I think this, this was a great conversation. Awesome. Thank you well, for that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad that you're able to kind of come on here and share some of your thoughts on the movie from a from a non-agricultural point of view, because that's a big thing too. Is you know, I'm I can bring all of the connections I see to the farm, but if you're seeing something else, and I, I want to know what what the you know what the average person is kind of seeing, so I can kind of know like a big part of education is knowing where your students' minds are at, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of and I, I I try to always take the perspective of. I'm not an expert. You know, I do a decent amount of research, but I by no means have all the answers. So if I say something that's incorrect, I want people to fact check me and let me know so I can, you know, so I can correct it. But yeah, it, I, I don't, I don't preach what I say for the sake of saying like, well, you know, I'm, I'm better than you for knowing about ag. I just want, I want other people to, to realize like, Hey, there's, there's a whole nother part of the world here that you guys are, are missing out on. And it's pretty cool. I think. And you know, it, it's, it's tied deeply into everything we, we consume, whether it be movies or video games or TV shows or books, whatever, it's all there. We should look for it a little bit. And that's kind of what the, what the whole purpose of, of today was. Again, well said, very well said. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that that kind of closes things out. And, you know, once again, to remind people the the whole purpose of this conversation was to kind of highlight the connection that agriculture and society uh, have, you know, that, that um, agriculture is a foundational piece of society and that, you know, that, no matter what the society is, even if it's run by dinosaurs, agriculture and food still has to be part of it. So I hope that that kind of was well addressed in today. I think it was, I think we kind of covered that pretty well. So awesome. Well, thanks again uh, for, you know, for joining me, Lou, before we close out, would you like to kind of remind all the generous folks where they can find you and uh, what, uh, what you talk about? Absolutely. Uh, so again, my podcast is robots versus dinosaurs and it's, it's, it is very much a movie podcast, but Um, It is called that because we talk about the past versus the future, the intersections of nature and technology. Um, I probably should have asked you, like, is is there a lot of, like, robots used in farming? Or is there the future of farming (laughs) involved? Like, is robotics Mm going to be an automation going to be, like, a big thing? Oh, yeah. Um, We we might need to do another episode on that guy because there's a lot to say on that, too. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have a lot (laughs) of questions about that. All right. Um, And I'd love to get you on my show, too, sometime if you're interested. Uh, And so yeah, you can check that on any any podcast app. I'm also a comedy writer. I write a lot of sketch comedy, and my my show that I uh, I, I I write for a monthly show called Our Bar. Um, you could check that out on our website or on Facebook. Just search for Our Bar, like Our Town, uh, but Our Bar NYC, and you'll find like some like comedy sketches and stuff if you're interested in that. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll definitely throw all your links down in the description so people can know where to find you. And uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. And like I said, I'm more than happy to have you back on if you want to do an episode on the robots, because I definitely have a lot to say on that one. Um, You know, I'd be more than happy to join you for any episodes that you have ideas for. I have tons of movies about both dinosaurs and robots that I'm a big fan of. So I'm actually really looking to do a Wally episode soon. So I really want to cover that. Um, yes. so I have somebody that I think might want to do, but if they're not available, I would love to have you on. And even if we do another one, just not about what we're going to talk about in the other episode, then we could definitely do that. Or um, first, I'd love to have you on my show to talk about Wally. Yeah, that'd, that'd be, be perfect. I could do that. Um, but yeah, so I think that that kind of covers everything and yeah. So thanks. Thanks to all my listeners for tuning in. Thanks again, Lou, for joining me. This has been a lot of fun and don't forget if you wait today, thank a farmer. <laughs>